Today's scripture verses will be from the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 20. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. May the word of God be blessed today. You may be seated and uh, allow me to pray for us before we jump into the word. Father God, we thank you. Uh, Just for your grace and love, Father, that you have allowed us to have in our hands um, a written will, Father. That you have shown us what you ask of us, God, that you have given us through examples and through models, Father, and predominantly through your Son, uh, the life that we are to live as Christians. We just pray this in your Son's name. Amen. In most careers, um, several of you are probably still working right now, and most of the careers that you have, the goal is to climb. That is, the goal is to grow upward. We all base our job and base how well we're doing our job and how well we're being promoted on whether or not we can trade our menial tasks for more important work. If we can have fewer bosses and more servants. If we can do less toil and get more pay. And after a number of years of inexperience, workers start to say things like, I shouldn't be asked to do this kind of stuff anymore. I tried that my fourth year here. Um, It didn't really go over too well. (laughs) Others might say something like, that's entry level work. I'm tenured now. Let somebody else do it. That's what I said when we hired Brandon. And then sometimes when the climb doesn't go in the way that we expected, a person might deem their job as a dead end. It's going nowhere. I am not growing. I'm not going upward. I'm not not elevating. There's no chance of promotion. It's a dead end. Now, sometimes this mindset of an upward climb can sometimes creep into other corners of life, including our marriages, our parenthood, our friendships, and even our Christian walk. The problem with this mindset, though, this mindset that we must grow upward, that we must climb upward, is that it's so foreign to the Bible's depiction of discipleship. For a Christian, the call is not to climb upward, or at least not to climb upward in the way we tend to understand what upward is. The goal is to climb downward. It's an inverted climb to go downward in humility, to go downward in sacrifice. Our career calls us to soar. Discipleship calls us to stoop. Major difference. As disciples, we're not those who are just growing upward to become more significant, to become more important, to gain more respect. We as disciples are people who grow to be able to stoop in service even lower. In other words, the bigger you get, the taller you get, the more impressive you become as a Christian, the more downward you go in humiliation, in sacrifice, in service for others, in love for others, the more you find yourself needing to descend rather to ascend. We see this truth in John 13, verses 1 through 20, through the actions of our king, who himself used the pinnacle of his authority to humbly serve his people. Knowing himself to be the preeminent son of man, Jesus claimed that he had come not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve, specifically 
by dying for sinners. Now, just by following that logic, we Christians bear the image of Christ. We are the ones that represent him. We are the ones that the world looks to to see what Jesus is like. And so as those who bear the image of the Savior, we will progressively grow to mirror the way he lived. We will progressively grow in our understanding that God is worthy. God is glorious. God is worth our worship. And we must be humble in our service to him and to others. Now in this text in John chapter 13, uh, if you're a visitor with us, we're glad you're here. We're just walking through this question, what is a disciple? Um, We're not asking the question, what is a Christian, okay? Because I do believe that a Christian is a disciple in all its fullest sense. It's not a political siding. It's not an evangelical white American Christian term or anything like that. The, the idea of a disciple is someone who follows Christ. That is what a Christian is. So we're asking that question. What is a disciple of Jesus? And so today we're going to see that disciples are servants who follow their Lord's pattern of service. Disciples are servants who follow their Lord's pattern of service. And I hope that as we get near the end, we begin to see that there's no act of service beneath us. Because there's no act of service beneath him. There's no act of service that's below us. There's no act of service too demeaning for us to do because there is no act of service too demeaning for him to do for us. Now we get to verse 1, which says this. Before, now before the Feast of Passover. It's not even a complete thought, but that is everything you need to know about the context. The entire gospel of John has been building up to this point of Passover. Jesus has been working and ministering, and and we see John visibly pull the brakes. He slows down. For the greater part of 12 chapters, you you see John systematically, methodically moving through three years of Jesus's ministry. And now suddenly in John 12 and 13, he pulls the brakes and we focus on a few moments rather than a few years. He wants us to slow down, to take time, to observe, to see what's going on. So here they are, right before the Feast of Passover. Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem, and the crowds were singing, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. He's just received praise as being the promised king that God has promised ever since the days of the Old Testament. He walks into Jerusalem. The Pharisees are stewing and plotting against him. The Greeks are asking to see him. We would see Jesus. And now we have this quiet, still room where Jesus sits just before the dinner with his disciples. It's the same dinner that they're going to commemorate God's redemption by providing a Passover lamb who died. And by the the blood that was poured over the door, over the lintels of the door, Israel's able to walk out of slavery to Egypt. And so we have this highly significant, highly symbolic moment in Jesus' life and ministry with his disciples. Now, I wonder what Jesus was thinking. He knew what he was about to do, right? He had just received all this praise. He had just had the whole streets of Jerusalem crowded with palm leaves and people praising as he's coming into the city, calling him the Davidic king. And so what is Jesus thinking? Well, John doesn't leave that hidden. Here's what he says in verse 1. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. Now, John likes that phrase, this hour, his hour. And it's typically used to describe Jesus' suffering and death. It's the hour all of history has been waiting for. For this one moment, this one pinnacle of time when God would send the promised one who would die just like the Passover lamb, whose blood would be over the hearts of those who believed in him, who would set his people free definitively forever. It's this moment, this preordained time of atonement with God, reconciliation with God through sacrifice. That's the hour that Jesus knew. That's the hour that was on Jesus's mind. He knew that time had come. It's time to die. And yet, in the midst of these thoughts of his coming death, he's also thinking about how much he loves these people around him. Having loved his own, he loved them till the end. So he knows that at this very moment, he's marching closer and closer and closer to the cross. 
where he's going to die for these very people that are sitting around him. But there's still more. The cross was not the only thing on his mind. Verses 2 through 3 say this. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Again, not a complete thought, but we know what Jesus is thinking here. On the one hand, he might be, he's thinking of the cross. He tells us that he knew his coming hour was coming, so he's got this... He's got the sight in his mind of the cross, but he's also got in sight the crown. The crown, the, the epitome of his majesty, the symbol of his glory. All things had been given over into his hands. Now, I don't think I'm qualified to really describe the significance and weight of that moment. Jesus looks ahead to his bloody coronation. To his splintery throne upon which he would be nailed. Simultaneously, this king that we see before us would be humiliated and exalted. In fact, exalted through humiliation. Exalted because of humiliation. The more they cry out in mockery, Hail, king of the Jews, the more truth is being proclaimed in that bloody Golgotha. He's looking at this mixture of this time where He is going to reach the depths of suffering and yet at the same time reach the height of authority. Now why would John tell us what Jesus is thinking? I just think as a sympathetic reader, if I'm I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, so Jesus knew that he was about to die. Jesus knew that all authority in heaven and and on earth had been given to him. What would I be thinking about? What would I do next? Well, first off, I'm going to try to solve that first thought, right? I've got all authority in heaven and earth. Well, the thought about my impending doom is going to be solved now. Or I might be thinking about how my disciples need to be serving me. Don't they know this is my final hour? It's time for them to get up and hand me the bread. But that's not what he does. Those mingled thoughts, the thoughts of excruciating death, Loving thoughts toward his disciples, the knowledge that Satan was at work, and the understanding that he had absolute, total authority from God led to one very timely action. You have to know what Jesus was thinking to appreciate what Jesus did next. Knowing he was about to die, knowing that he was the king who had authority like none other, he rose from the supper. Just amazing. Just to, just to hear John write that. That is great writing. He rose from supper. Systematically, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. He writes it with surprise. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Understanding a little bit about the background of foot washing is helpful. Feet are so disgusting that to this day we still make fun of them, right? Somebody pulls off their shoes and you're just kind of like, ugh, you know, it's gross, right? There's some of us that won't ever take off our shoes because we know how gross they are. And we thank you for that. (laughs) But even back then, in the ancient days... Feet had even more reason to be disgusting. I mean, we're talking about the days that Nike closed-toe shoes are not a norm. Nobody's walking around with tennis shoe laces and their feet fully covered. And guess what? They're an agrarian society, which means that where are the horses going to do their business? Right in the middle of the streets, along with all the children. I've been to uh, China, and I've walked the, uh, the streets, and I will tell you, there's no way in the world you will get me to walk through inland Chinese streets barefooted. And yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. They're walking through. Now, you come to somebody's house, you don't want to track that stuff in. Your feet are nasty. They are dirty. So typically, you'd wash your feet. It's the same thing as kicking off muddy shoes before you go into a host home, right? Imagine it's raining down and you've got these big mud clods, you're going to offer to kick them off just out of respect, right? 
But it was so disgusting that not even slaves were asked to do it often. Can you imagine this, this act of that not even the slaves are going, yeah, that, you, you get the lowest of low of society at the time, and they're saying, that ain't my job. And they're not willing to, to clean it off. Now, now, knowing that background, knowing all this muck and nastiness and just feeling the, filling the blank of what might be on somebody's feet. Now, add that to the equation that Jesus had knowledge that he had absolute, complete authority over all things and that he was about to die. You would not expect, no matter which way you see it, you would never expect the majestic king of kings the one who has authority over all the earth, the one who is about to already do the unspeakable by dying to rise up from the table, take off his robe, wrap a towel around his feet, and wash the nasty muck from human feet. We know this story all too well. We're not surprised by it anymore. And yet, as a Greco-Roman, or as a Jew who didn't know about this, reading this would have been like, what? He did what? He stooped how low? He bent down to wash what? That's the surprise that we're meant to be felt, that this... That this king, as paradoxical as it may sound, Jesus, the sovereign servant simultaneously was humbled and exalted. He had majestic work, and yet he was meek. He was the sovereign over all things, and yet he became the servant of all. What a great picture of his life. I I think this time, uh, studying through this week, it was the first time I actually see this picture as a great image and illustration of everything that Jesus did. I mean, you get this phrase, he laid aside. Well, that sounds familiar. Isn't Jesus the same one that laid aside his glory from eternity past? Isn't Jesus the same one that laid aside the right to be treated like God? Who took on, wrapped the towel of human flesh around himself. Why? To wash away muck. To wash away muck. In Paul's words, he took on the form of a slave. This is an amazing paradox of who our Savior is. Being the Lion of Judah, he is also the slaughtered Lamb of God. Being king, he is also the servant. His suffering and his humiliation are indivisibly connected to his exaltation. In God's grand scheme from the beginning, God had it planned that the two... Suffering servanthood and glorious kingship would be merged together into the single person of Jesus Christ, all for the purpose of redeeming us. Great glorious son of man of Daniel 7, who approaches the ancient of days in all things, in all dominions, in all tribes, in all languages, in all nations, handed over to him to do with as he wills, and yet... He's also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who opens not his mouth, is led like a lamb to the slaughter, dies. That is how he serves, dies for the forgiveness of sins. There's an amazing majesty and mystery in this. It's not allegorical. It's just showing what Jesus has done for all of us. It's showing what, G, what, what the plan was from the beginning, that this Davidic king, that this glorious last Adam would wash humanity's feet. It was so surprising that even one of his closest friends, his disciple, Peter, he comes to Peter. I love Peter. Peter... Um, Peter doesn't really think before he speaks, and so I kind of I find some connectivity in Scripture with that guy. Um, just kind of says what he feels, and here's what he says. Gets to Simon Peter and says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter's dumbfounded, understandably. This is unspeakable. You have never seen this happen 
in Israel's day before. Rabbis don't wash their students' feet. Lords and masters, they don't wash their servants' feet. This is weird. This is odd. What do you say? And then he almost rebukes Jesus. In the same way that he rebuked Jesus when Jesus said that the Son of Man would suffer and die, and Peter rebuked him. Here's what he says. You shall never wash my feet. It's almost like Peter saying, Lord, I understand that you're kind of new at this whole king thing. I understand you really don't know what to do with this all-encompassing authority. But one of the things you don't do with it is wash people's feet. So let me just tell you, you're, you're starting off on the wrong foot, pun intended. You will never wash my feet. It's a command almost, right? You will never wash my feet. And yet, that's when Jesus begins to show just how rich this metaphor is. I mean, Peter's right. He's not wrong. Lords do not suffer. Lords do not wash servants' feet. Feet, I guess it's plural already. Lords simply don't do this. Masters don't do this. But he's wrong in in what he understands Jesus is doing. Jesus answers back in verse 8. Here's what he says. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, just that alone in verse 8 should tip us off that more is at stake here than just simply washing feet. It's not just about getting dirt off feet anymore. I mean, this is Jesus giving an illustration for how we as humans can have a relationship apart with God. A relationship, a share with God. What must it take for Peter to have a relationship with Jesus? Very simply, Jesus must wash him. He must be washed. Peter realizes that more is going on, although I still don't think Peter completely gets it. And so he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head and my hands. Okay, great. If it's all about a relationship, then go ahead and just give me the full bath. And then Jesus kind of picks it up. The one who has been bathed does not need washed except for his feet, but is completely clean. You, plural, he's speaking to all of his disciples, are clean, but not every one of you. So in other words, he's saying, Peter, you've already believed in me. You've already had faith in me. You already know that I am the Son of God in flesh. You are clean. This symbol is meant to point to something different than a physical washing. It's meant to point to something different. It's an illustration. Now consider the context. Jesus is kind of, he knows, this is, this is where it gets really rich and deep, I feel like. Jesus knows that he's about to die. I think you can add to that, Jesus knows why he's about to die. So what makes the act of foot washing a symbol of redemption? What makes the, th- the fact that Jesus, the sovereign king of all, stoops down to wash the feet? How does that fulfill all redemptive promises? Well, you hear it all throughout the Old Testament in the ancient promises of God. In Isaiah 1.18, God invites his people, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, they, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is, the Yahweh, this is Yahweh promising his people, If you come and you reason with me, I will wash you and you will be clean. Later in Ezekiel 36, he gives another promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now, this is amazing, because when you see the God of the Old Testament, he's a God who washes his filthy people. He's a God who washes away the muck, the junk, the crud, the nasty toe jam of idolatry. He's the God who alone can do it. They can't wash themselves, purify them as they might. They might go into the baptismal pool right before getting into the synagogue. They cannot make themselves one spot cleaner. There are stains too deep, too dark, too nasty, too gross for them to watch. It must be God who washes them if they are to be clean. And now we have the Son of God in flesh. Who with his newly stated, 
Authority. All authority. What does he do with it? What's the first act he does in recognition that he has all authority? Let me wash you. Let me make you clean. It's a profound symbol that the God of the Old Testament, the God who spoke through Ezekiel and the God who spoke through Isaiah, that the washing that they foresaw has come as Jesus has come to wash the feet of sinners, to wash away the muck and stains of sin, and to do so not just with water, but with his own blood. I don't see how anyone can read John 13 rightly without having their own salvation in mind. The Bible's meant to be read and reflected upon and, and meant to, we're meant to fill the weight. When Jesus stooped down as a servant, it was a foreshadow of the way he would stoop down under the weight of the cross. When he died for sinners and washed them from sin and rose again as high priest to continue to purify them from sin... I think that's all of our stories. We very well are those disciples sitting around the table with Jesus, the Lord of the universe, washing our feet. We are the ones whose feet still haven't dried because Jesus just washed them free. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says, Jesus' blood has cleansed our consciences from dead works. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 says that we have been sprinkled clean. That sounds very Ezekiel-like, right? I will sprinkle you clean. Okay, great. Hebrews 10, you have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are cleansed from sin. Just let that truth set out there for a moment. We don't like silence in churches a lot. We do everything we can to, to make sure transitions are filled with something, right? But just let that truth set in. You are clean. Why? Because the nastiness of your spiritual feet, and not just your feet, but your mind, your heart, your head, your hands, has been washed. Wow. But not enough while yet. Who has washed us? The king. Stepping down from his throne of authority. Lays aside the royal robes. Can you just imagine this happening in a courtroom? In, in a royal court. The king rises from the throne. Pulls off the royal robes. We're all just aghast. Walks over to a servant, takes the servant cloth, wraps it around himself, and kneels in the presence of all to wash your feet. That's the truth of the gospel, is that in order to have a relationship with Jesus, we must be washed, and it must be Jesus who does the washing, or else we simply will not be washed. That's the symbol that this foot washing is giving us. That Jesus, the sovereign son of God, king of all, has taken up the place of a slave so that we could have our feet washed. So that we could have a relationship with God. Now, Jesus finished washing his disciples' feet. He takes back off the servant cloth. He puts back on the robe and he sits down. I can just only imagine how quiet. Can you imagine if this happened at your Thanksgiving dinner? Grandpa gets up from the table, takes off his shirt, okay, and then starts to rub your feet clean. When he sits back down, you're probably asking, okay, Grandpa, are you going to wash your hands? Um, but you're also just kind of dumbfounded at this moment, right? Just like, what has just happened? I can just imagine there's, there's just silence, dead silence in the room. Probably a few disciples rubbing their now clean feet going, Maybe I should have made the first move. Wow, he did a good job. He cleaned up really well. Why would he do that? I can just imagine all eyes are on Jesus, and he's, stand, he's sitting there. And he looks up, and he says the obvious. 
do you understand what I have done to you? Well, the answer is obviously no, because Jesus doesn't give them time to answer. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, it's amazing because Jesus begins his explanation with a statement of his identity. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, you call me Lord and teacher, and then moves on. He says, you call me Lord and teacher, and so I am. I, you're absolutely right. I am Lord. I am teacher. Which expresses his elevated status. He's the one they follow. He sets the pace. He picks the destination. He sets the route. They follow him. If he's Lord and teacher, they listen to him. They submit under his authority. And yet look at what the teacher did. Look at where the master is taking them. Walks ahead in service. What is good for the teacher is good for the servant. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If the teacher and the Lord washes the student's feet, then so should the students wash others' feet. This means that foot washing goes beyond just being a symbol of our redemption, but now it becomes a model for how we are to live. Now, this is what's amazing. Some people take the redemption of Christ and they make it to only a model, right? I think that's wrong because it's not just a model. Jesus didn't just take up a servant to show us how to be servants. Jesus took up the, the form of a servant to save us. And then because of that truth, now we are able to follow the model of taking up service. It's important to see that the symbol precedes the model. Jesus' symbol of redemption precedes his explanation of the example. Why is that important? Because John 13 is more than just some kind of moralistic call to service. It's not just simply pointing at John 13 and saying, you should serve others, you should serve others. That's not what John 13 is doing. John 13 adds this, Jesus served you, Jesus served you, therefore serve others. You see why it's important to keep the symbol first and the model second? Otherwise, we're just going to be walking around saying, serve, serve, serve. Without the extra added fact of the truth of redemption, we serve why? What is the basis? What is the source? What is the motivation for our service? We have been served. always this way. First comes the redemptive love of Christ, and then afterwards comes the call to love others. Jesus says as much in verse 15, do as I have done to you. In other words, what I did to you. Truth, indicative, that is, that is the truth of the gospel. What I have done to you, now the model, do unto others. It's also expressed in passages like John 13, 34, just a few verses down from here. And John 15, 12, when Jesus says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So first comes the truth of redemption, then comes the model. First John three sixteen goes more in depth than any of them, though, where it says that we now know what love is because he first loved us. We now know how to define love. And when you ask 1 John, how do you define love? Here's what 1 John says, that he laid down his life for us. Now, what do we do with that definition of love? Lay down your life for others. That's what 1 John leads us to. The basis of our love and service for each other is the truth that Jesus has loved and served us. We can wash away the muck of each other's feet. Because Jesus has washed away far greater mud off of our feet. We can do the unspeakable when it comes to bearing burdens and loving one another and forgiving people. Because Jesus has done more than that for us. This highlights two truths. Now I think first, truly Christian service is founded on the gospel. 
If you want to know the difference between Christian service and humanitarian work, for example, or Christian service and a nice deed, Christian service is always based in the gospel. If it can be labeled Christian, it is because of, it is from, it is in light of, it is founded upon the fact that Jesus died to save sinners. That means you serving in the nursery, notice I said you and not me, you serving in the nursery, changing diapers, is only Christian insofar as you change those diapers in light of the fact that Jesus has done far more for you. Spending time in youth ministry, giving comfort to a young person, is only Christian service insofar as you do it based in the fact that God has comforted you in Jesus. Otherwise, it's just doing things. When we make big calls out for volunteers and we ask for volunteers in the children's ministry and the youth ministry, we're not asking you to join alongside our to-do list. We're asking you to apply the gospel in real ways. Because truly Christian service is gospel service. He suffered for me, and now I can be inconvenienced for the sake of others. I can now put holds on my schedule because at the right time, Jesus died for me. I can give my life away one sermon at a time, one counseling session at a time, one hospital visit at a time. It's not too big of a gift. It's not too big of a sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus sacrificed a lot more for me. Second, I think this needs to be apparent, but I'm going to say it. And I typically would say it goes without saying, but then you kind of got to say it. So that phrase doesn't work. So it should go without saying, but we're going to say it anyway. Our condescension to serve is nothing compared to Jesus' condescension. As a pastor, I've heard many people say, oh, that's not my task. Let somebody else do that. There's sometimes as a pastor, I think, oh, that's not my task. Let somebody else do it. We come with this mindset that because of our years of experience and because of our sacrifices in the past and because of our status, Do you know how much I give in my tithe? Do you know how much time I've spent? Because of those things, we tend to feel like that to serve in some lesser way is too great a condescension for us. And yet, we fail to remember that Jesus Christ, who was enthroned in the heights of heaven, condescended to take on the form not of a human king. That would have been a condescension still. To go from heaven's king to a human king, that would have been a big condescension, right? He doesn't, that's not the the depth of his dissension, though. He goes below her. He doesn't condescend to become a Pharisee, right? That would have been condescension enough to go from the God who wrote the book that the Pharisees studied to being a Pharisee. That would have been condescension enough. He goes lower. He doesn't just become a citizen. He gives up home. He gives up land rights. He gives up his own ability to live for himself. You know, he made the land of Israel, and yet he is homeless in it when he comes. He has to go like a fox without holes, birds without nests. He condescended lower than a citizen. He goes from heaven's high king. Ready for this? Doulos. Slave. Now that's condescension. I don't think I could ever stoop that low. It's not just I don't think. I, I know I could never stoop that low the toilet gets clogged (laughs) I'm the pastor I don't do those things right 
Well, the condescension from pastor to plumber is infinitely less than the condescension of high king to humble servant. There's simply no way we can out-condescend God. From glory into muck. Now, here's the thing. He steps into the muck. We're already living in it. He was already clean and decides to dirty his hands with dirty feet. Our hands are already dirty. We're already in the muck. We're already in the nastiness. Again, the condescension simply cannot be compared. There is simply no way you can outpace your Savior in serving others. No way. I'm fully convinced that when Jesus gives the least of these speech to his disciples, he's talking about himself. Because he talks about the one who is last will be first. Well, who is the first according to other texts? He is. Why? Because he became the last of all. He is the alpha. Why? Because he put his big omega stamp on his death. Jesus became the greatest servant of all. God taking on flesh, not just to show us how to live, but to die and to redeem us from the sins we committed against him. Diapers don't seem that big of a deal now, do they? Giving up a Wednesday to work with the Wana kids shouldn't seem like that big of a deal. Spending time just to interrupt your busy schedule to pray with someone that you know is sick. Not that big of a deal, not that big of a condescension. And yet there's just sometimes we feel like we simply cannot descend that low. It's at those moments when I realize in my own heart and life, that I am not willing to descend into that level of service. That the Holy Spirit tends to move us to sense this idea of, wait a second, didn't I do that on a far greater extent for you? Now here's the great thing. When you live with that mindset, your service becomes a joy, not a burden. Service becomes a joy. Living for others, living so that others can sense and see the way that you love them because you want them to know the way that Christ has loved you. It becomes a joy. When all of a sudden I realize that an interruption in my calendar is not an interruption at all, is not an inconvenience, it's not anything. It's not, it's not a drawing out of my abilities or anything. It is simply an opportunity to rehearse what Jesus did. Doing dishes for my wife, I can do it for two reasons. Number one, because it has to get done and she's sick. Or I can do dishes because I'm symbolically rehearsing the fact that Jesus washed the dirty dishes of my life. Not when I was sick, but when I was dead. Motherhood. Not that big of a condescension. And you condescend more than any of us. My wife gets in the floor to change diapers. My wife stoops down to wipe up the potty train messes. I've been sick for three days. It was my wife who handed me the bowl of soup. And she does it with a smile and she does it with joy. Why? Because she knows that she does nothing that Christ hasn't done infinitely more for her. It is a joy. As disciples, we take joy in serving because it's a chance to fall in line with our Savior. Verse 17, Jesus ends his discourse saying this. Well, not ends the discourse, but ends this part of the discourse. Here's what he says. If you know these things, now that's important. Blessed are you if you do them. Notice he doesn't say blessed are you if you know these things. 
Because that would have an entirely different meaning, doesn't it? But he says, blessed are you if you know these things. And then he follows, or he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We know the truth of service. There's many of us who know that we have been served by Jesus through the self-sacrifice and through the blood. But how often do we move from knowing these things to doing these things? That's where the joy comes out. That's where the promise of joy is. Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. Some of you wonder, if I serve, am I going to hate it? Jesus' promise in verse 17 is no. You will not. Blessed are you. Not in material wealth. If you sign up for the nursery, you're not going to get any richer. But blessed in the sense of you get to see an aspect of the kingdom that you wouldn't have seen without it. Blessed in the sense you get to understand what Jesus has done for you in a way you wouldn't have known. When you're, when you're sacrificially, this, this sacrificial servanthood, this servant leadership type model, when you do that as a mother, there's just something about it that brings an understanding of the way that God has parented you. When I stoop down to put a band-aid on my child and after he scraped himself, I just, I just think of the accessibility that I have to God and the comfort he gives me and the kind of hug I can imagine, the infinitely high, transcendent God of the universe stooping down to give a worm like me some comfort. That's where the joy and service comes from. Because the further we go down in service to others, the more we see what Jesus actually did for us. Now, I'm, I, I don't know if you know this, but I can hear thoughts sometimes. My wife would disagree. Um, but there's probably some of you here who might be saying, I hear what you're saying, but you don't understand what I'm going through. How can I serve when X, Y, and Z is happening in my life? How can I serve when there's all these things and hindrances coming about? So let's just ask that question right now. What would John 13 say about the hindrances in our lives? Because we all have hindrances, right? I mean, Sunday mornings, and it's kind of hard to get up out of bed, and I've got allergies, and my allergy pill doesn't kick in until 9.30, and so that's why I can't serve in the children's ministry at 10.30, we all have hindrances, right? Okay, so what would John 13 say? Here's what it says in verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's interesting there. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he or simply that I am. So let's just add on to the addition of what Jesus knows. Okay, John has told us a lot of what he knows. He knows he's about to die, probably why he's about to die. He knows that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. Here's what else he knows. That the man who would betray him is one of the men that he just washed their feet. The man that he just washed the muck and the dirt and the cow piles and the horse piles off of is the very man, his, his close friend in Psalm 41.9 who would raise up that now clean hill against his Savior. I mean, it just gets infinitely more complicated. Would you serve knowing that you are going to be mistreated, abused, maligned, betrayed? Well, Jesus did. He doesn't use the excuse, no, you don't understand, not all these men are my friends. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, no, you don't understand. There's one of them sitting at this table who I know is going to take that heel and drive it straight into my face. He overcomes the hindrance out of deep love. He overcomes the hindrance. His, his is a service par excellence. Serving even the one who would betray him. Now, here's the question. What's my excuse? Too busy? 
commitment too tough. It'll take too much energy. You will probably be mistreated in the nursery. There are little toddlers that can raise their heel against you really quick. There are people in this room that will kick you in your back when you turn it. And yet, is it worth the risk to serve them? To wash their feet? Now, we have got to end or else we will be here all day. This is the example that Jesus has given us. This is what we must do to be disciples. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus very simply is saying, I am commissioning you all out in my name to do the same. My friends, we as a church, we as Christians, are called to wash the feet of the nations. We do that by proclaiming the clean water of the word, The gospel itself, inviting people to get the muck and the filth of the word washed off of their feet. So if by serving Jesus we represent and we reflect him, how well are we serving others? That's the question on the table. My friends, my prayer is that as you continue to serve, and if you're not serving, if you're motivated to serve, That you'll reflect upon the first great truth. You have been served. Not just by anyone. But by the king of kings. Who has washed the nastiest, filthiest, grossest, deepest, darkest toes. That have walked through sin. You are clean. I use that knowledge and proclaim cleansing to others. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus died so that we could be made clean. He was buried. And Father, he rose again. And now he still serves us as our high priest. His service didn't end at the cross. It continues on for all eternity as he stands as our representative and as our righteousness. Now, God, in that knowledge, knowing that our high king sitting at the right hand of the father, waiting for the day that he will come back to earth as the reigning king still serves us by taking our prayers to you, by speaking righteousness over us, Father, by being our righteousness itself, may we be motivated to serve others. Make us true disciples. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. You may be someone who wants prayer. Maybe you're considering serving. Maybe you've got... All kinds of things in your life you just feel like you need to be served right now by letting people wash over you with prayers and, and to be cleansed, just, just to be comforted by that sweet water of prayer. Um, we're going to give you an invitation to do that. Um, elders, if you'll go to the back, uh, take your wife with you. And um, if you need to have prayer, just go back and see one of these brothers. They are great servants and great men of God. And so um, if you'll go and pray with them. If you want to know more about Jesus and how to believe in Jesus... We would love to talk with you in the back, so just come and see us.